Okay, y'all, before we get started, I just need to say one thing. As of about, I don't know, about one o'clock yesterday, I turned in my dissertation. Yep. It's a happy day, very happy day. I plan on eating like a whole carrot cake today, drink a shiner, maybe two, and just enjoy myself today after this. Very excited. Um, let's do this way. It was a beautiful wedding. And of course it was because it was ours, right? Uh, someone you love, seeing someone you love and so beautiful who's walking towards you in commitment, uh, who locks eyes with you in love, there's nothing like it. And when I do weddings, I always position, I make sure that the groom has an unobstructed view of his bride when she comes around the corner. And I say, you just tackle anybody that gets in the way, there's just nothing better than that. It's what it's for. Uh, and, I, and that's the great part of our wedding. That was the best part of our wedding. Uh, but there was a bad part of our wedding, too. Nancy's dad was a minister, <clears throat> so he was marrying us. However, at the rehearsal, no one thought through the little itty-bitty detail of, like, if the minister, who's the father, is walking the bride down the aisle, <laughs> who is going to lead the groom out of the back room. Me, right? So after nine or ten, I don't even remember how many we had, groomsmen walked the bridesmaids down. Uh, Pete and I, my brother and the best man, I are in the back parlor just cutting up, laughing, telling stories, man, crying, uh, enjoying these moments together of being kind of this last, like, unmarried moment before we'd be married, and we don't know what our friendship, relationship, whatever it looks like, but it's changing, right? We're getting married. And so we're cutting up, and then I, I think it's right at the same time we both looked at each other, and we go, hey, when are we supposed to go out? <laughs> it hits us. Pete comes up with this brilliant idea. He goes, I know. I'll ask mom. <laughs> so he heads out on the mission to go ask mom. Now, there's this crucial moment in the service that was practiced at the rehearsal because our folks are both, her folks and my folks are musical, so they know all these musical people, right? And I was going to come out, the groom, at this climactic moment with trumpets blaring. Well, that's when Pete walks out <laughs> with the trumpets. It gets worse because he, exit, he enters the place from a, a door over here in front of everybody, and then he literally squat walks <laughs> to the front row to find my mom and asks her, when are we supposed to come out? The place is going, uh, evidently, crazy. And you're saying, Jeff, it's not that bad. I am telling you it's that bad. We have it on tape. At this time, I'm in the back room, and I'm wondering what's taking him so long. I'm sure I need to get out there soon. Someone needs to tell us what's going on. And there's a phone on the wall, and it starts ringing. And I start thinking, who would be calling in the middle of a wedding? So I go over to the phone, and I go, hello? And I recognize the voice <laughs> instantly. <laughs> it was the Nazi wedding coordinator of the church. And she goes, tell the groom to get, she's yelling. Tell the groom to get out there now. And I go, yes, ma'am, I'll tell that idiot right away. <laughs> so that night, I try to communicate all this to Nancy on our honeymoon night. I, I, I try to say, sweetie, I don't think things went as smoothly as you might have wanted. 
Uh, I know when I came out, I explained every tour, when I came out, everybody was laughing and, and looking at me and chuckling, and she goes, bless her heart. She goes, honey, they always smile at the groom. I go, no, honey, this was, this was worse. It was not good. She goes, Jeff, you, you like to exaggerate stories. You're exaggerating. It really wasn't that bad. I said, honey, it was that bad. A month later, we watched our video together. It was that bad. <laughs> I want to welcome you to a world without shame, an unashamed world, the world of Genesis 2, 25. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that um, you, you wrote your word. You inscripturated it. You breathed it. Uh, and now you enlighten and illuminate and shine on the page through it. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to do this. We ask you to fill us. We ask you to dwell on us richly. And we ask that you would strengthen us with power through these words. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, y'all. So Genesis 2 is what? Genesis 2 is paradise. Genesis 2 is cosmic color. Uh, heaven and earth touch. And so when heaven and earth touch, there's a fusion of, of brilliance and cosmic color. Everything is music in chapter 2. Everyone and everything is dancing in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is multidimensional flourishing with God, with, with each other, with the man and the woman, with the first marriage, with creation, with work, uh, with ourselves. It is very good. It's incredibly good. It's a declaration of what's true, and it's, the, it's a let there be what's true. It's good everywhere at every level, Right? So what's the point of verse 25? I mean, think about it. He could have said it this way. The writer could have said, and the man and his wife are both naked and were really happy. Like, really fulfilled or fulfilled. Or they could have said, you know, like on my account, they could have said really excited because they're naked. Right? Or they could have picked a different troubling emotion. The writer could have picked something else that was more troubling to us, those overwhelming, painful emotions. He could have said a man and his wife were both naked and were without fear or sadness or regret or anxiety or despair or discouragement or self-loathing. He could have picked a number of damaging emotions. He also could have been more theologically accurate. He could have said, listen, the man and his wife were both naked and were without sin, preparing us for chapter 3. When sin enters the world, but the writer chooses shame. God chooses shame. Why? Why without shame? Why shame at the last part of paradise? Whatever the answer, something incredibly significant is going on for us immediately in this text. 
something we need to all pay attention to, and that is shame is a big deal in the Bible. And it's been a big deal in the Bible before Brene Brown came on the scene. Do you know that her TED Talk on shame has now reached 31 and a half million views and counting? So why shame? Three things. What we're going to do is this passage is, going to, is like a lens that wants you to read backwards. It's a lens that wants you to read forward. And then it's a lens that wants you to read further forward. And that's the progress of how we're going to flow here. I want you to know how it's inviting you to read backwards. Do you see that? In other words, God's saying, look, in light of everything I've just shown you, I've just, I've just shown you, I've shown you paradise. I've shown you a world that's so beautiful and so rich and it's so removed from your existence, but I want you to see the way things were. I've shown you paradise, and now he's saying to us, I've shown it to you, now I want you to reread it. In verse 25, he's saying, I want you to reread what we just looked at, and I want you to reread it with one lens. Read it like what would it be like to not have shame? What would your relationship with God look like without shame? Now, I, this past week, I've had pastoral care with five folks, and I have all, it's always, it's always confidential. Um, I'm not singling anybody out. I'm stating the facts and what happens. There is, there is usually 99.9% of the pastoral care appointments I have a common thread that's woven through all of them, whether it's anxiety or whether it's depression or whether it's self-hatred or whether it's cutting or whether it's just stress or whether it's just this desperate desperation to change, whether it's striving, anger, or control issues, whether it's just excessive worry and concern about someone else or whether it's addictions. There's a common thread that weaves through all of them and that is shame before God. Because that shame before God just kind of spills this dark, deep stain that goes into our hearts, our relationships, and everything else in our life. What would a relationship with a good creation, this good creation that we just heard about, marriage that we just looked at last week, what would a, what would a relationship with good creation, with work, with the gifts that God's given, the powerfully embedded stuff in creation, what would that look like without shame? She's the chief executive of a successful marketing firm. She relies on hard work. This particular woman relies on hard work and hard discipline to get things done, so she couldn't figure out. She was bewildered at why her company was sinking. So she poured more effort into it, more energy into it, more discipline into it. She tried everything and it was still sinking and she was out of ideas and she's talking to her counselor about this and the counselor says, well, Elizabeth, why, why don't you ask someone for help? Who can you ask for help? And she says, quote, I can't. I can't afford not to have ideas that work. I can't I can't ask anyone for help. If I do, I'll be seen as incompetent and the board will fire me. Shame at work. At work. What would your marriage look like without shame? And then by extension, all your other relationships, all your other friendships, all your relationships with your kids, your, the culture of the family, the cultures of church, the communities and neighbors, 
uh, from book clubs to running clubs to bike clubs to music clubs, whatever it is, what would it look like without shame? I'm not willing to do that, he said. So the counselor says, well, why aren't you willing to do that? I mean, what, what can you possibly imagine will happen if you tell your wife? He says, real simple, I will be humiliated. She didn't get in. I'm worried now about her future and how it's going to impact her. It's a classic mother-daughter response, right? This mother worked really hard to get her daughter into an area school that was top in the area and really wanted that to happen, was thinking of the doors that would open, the potentialities and all of that. And that's all great. It's typical, right? Mothers and daughters have those conversations or feel that way, right? Except this daughter is three years old. Now, dads, don't you smirk. Because when I read that, I smirk. And then I thought, oh, what about me on a ball field? And then now you singles out there, don't you smirk? Because I sat where you were. I saw the kids at Walmart, and I saw the parents on the ball fields, and I said once, I will never be that parent. <laughs> Why shame? When we look at the world that was beautiful and pristine and it was paradise, and God is saying, I want you to just take a look at it. I want you to reread it again. Just all that we looked at, I want you to go back and look at it without shame. Why? Because it's absolutely impossible to imagine a world without shame. We don't know that world. And that's what the text does in next. It, it helps us read forward. Basically what God is saying is, I'm about to tell you the story of the human race. So he looks back, 25, but now 25 is casting to the rest of the human race and the rest of the story of the world is now opening up and it's the story of the world that we know and God is saying, I want to tell you the story of the world. I want to tell you. I want to invite you into your story. I want to explain to you in verse 25 why you are the way you are. Verse 25 is saying to every single one of us, listen, here's why you think the way you think. This is the why you, why you feel the way you feel. This is the why you act the way you act. This is the why you interact in your relationships the way you do. This is the way, why you handle work the way you handle it, why you handle sex the way you handle it, why you handle your art, and why you handle your education, and why you handle everything. If you are a human being, if you have a pulse, Verse 25 is telling you, you've been infected with shame. Shame explains you and me. You don't have to go any further in any other way of understanding yourself than verse 25 when it says the most difficult, painful harmful, hurtful, overwhelming stuff in your life is shame. It's also the subconscious undercurrent of why we do what we do. 
even though we don't know why what we do. Like we go to Romans 7 and Paul says, I don't know what, why I do. The Bible actually tells us, ultimately Paul knows, it's out of the, the current and the water and the blood in our veins is shame. If shame explains us, what is shame? That's a tough one, isn't it? Try to come up with a definition right now. What is shame? What we're going to do is we're going to uh, feel shame first, and then we're going to have a nice, tidy, theological definition of it. So that's, and then we're going to wrap things up. So that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time. Carlos Acosta is a world-famous Cuban dancer. When he was a little boy, I want you to think of what would it be like for a little boy at the age of four, five, six, that's, pro- that's where he was, to be taken, because this is a communist area, taken from his home, taken from his mom and dad, and put far, far away in a boarding school to train people to dance. Can you imagine? You try to take my son away from me. He uh, said while he was there, he started talking to cockroaches. Why, Carlos, did you talk to cockroaches? He said, they and I had much in common. Ed Welch tells of this particular person that he counsels who obsesses over suicide. See, while her classmates are doing the, you know, the normal schoolgirl chatter, she's obsessing about how her life is one big mistake and how she doesn't deserve to live. She's 10 years old. Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald, were shame factories. The Nazis there, we all know, we've seen the videos, we've seen the movies, we've seen it all. We know the dehumanization, especially of dehumanizing Jews that took place there, right? But there, of all the murderous methods that they had, though, they had one that was in common. Every guard used it. It was from the top down. It was used everywhere they went. And it was common in everything that happened there. And it was this. Every Jew was called a piece of sh. And as I told the first service, I, I feel like I need to say that, though. We need to hear that. So we'll say dung and we'll say excrement, right? And then it gets real creepy. You know why it gets real creepy? Because when you read Malachi... Malachi says the demark of shame in the ancient world was having sh- dung on your face. You're a piece of. Shame says you're a piece of. Jeffrey O'Brien, he's the editor in chief of the Library of America, he did a highbrow review on the blockbuster movie Spider Man. 2002 one, though. I'm still trying to debate which one I like best. But he hearkened back to the time of the original comic. Brent, is Brent here? Well, this is his specialty. He hearkened back to 1962 to the original comic, and he wrote this. He says, the crucial point plot of the original episode was that Peter Parker's initial burst of unwanton arrogance on receiving his spider powers led to the death of his beloved Uncle Ben. That's how Spider-Man started. So the notion of moral lapse, his momentary hubris that could never really be atoned for, gave the comic book its air of perpetual dissatisfaction. Being Spider-Man was a perpetual reminder to the hero of his own shortcomings. There was always the possibility he would fail again, and so he was condemned to this vigilant self-monitoring of his own reactions and impulse. He was scared to death of himself, 
In such a situation, an unqualified sense of triumph was by definition impossible. In its own goofy way, the amazing Spider-Man acknowledges the tragic sense of life. Even Spider-Man was never good enough. What is shame? Let's move to a definition. What is shame? Luther said shame is a soul-threatening attack. What is shame? This is so important. Shame is not something you do, and it's not something that happens to you, and it's not something you're associated with. Shame is not something you do. Shame is something you're in. You're in it. This is why the point, the point of verse 25 is not given us a theological definition of sin. You were without sin. He could have said that. Set us up perfectly for chapter 3 when sin enters the world. The answer is because the reason why God is not doing that is because he is highlighting the experience of sin over the theology of sin because it's the experience of sin as shame that shows up first before we can have any grammar or any words to describe it. It's present. And now we're trying to figure it out. Now we're trying to describe it. Now we're trying to put grammar to it. Now we're trying to give language to it. We're in it. So here's the definition of shame. Shame is a primal, painful experience. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's not an abstraction. It's not something that you now go say, oh, if I just understand what it is, I'll fix it. It's a primal, painful experience of not being good enough, of being less than. It's self-diminishment to such an extent that you just start self-diminishing and you spend your life just slowly diminishing, blowing it at work, blowing it with your spouse, blowing it with the kids, blowing it in your gifts, your talents, your abilities, just not measuring up, and then there's nothing, there's no you left. I'm a nothing. I'm a zero. A nobody. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time, Rocky, remember? The original. The first one. You know why he fought, remember? Adrian's like, don't do it, don't do it, Rocky, no. And he says, I have to. I have to prove to myself that I'm not a bum. Shame is the painful experience of you're a piece of Kurt Thomas, author of Anatomy of the Soul and the Soul of Shame, says emotion is the gasoline in the human tank. So if we run out of emotion, you as a human being literally stop moving. Because of sin, the experience of sin, we're going to talk about the theology of sin next week, chapter 3. You bet we're on it, because that's where the text is going. But isn't it interesting that God gives you the experience of sin as shame first? 
because of sin, shame is the gasoline in the human tank right now. It's what drives us. Consciously and subconsciously. What's the difference? Consciously, you feel like you're a nothing. If it's working subconsciously in you, you feel pretty good about yourself. That's how it works. Why shame? Well, if we look backwards or we read forwards, it's impossible to imagine a life without it. And that's why this is absolutely breathtaking. Because this passage always says, keep reading. It's interesting. You get to Paul in Romans, and he says this little thing. That's the, it's the verse that blows up the whole Bible, whole book of Romans. And he says these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And commentaries and dissertations are just spilt on what he means by being, what was he ashamed of? Was he ashamed of, you know, his, his, his blindness? If he had blindness, was he ashamed of some emotional malady or a spiritual weakness? What was he ashamed of? And they're on the wrong track. Those were intentional words. Those were carefully well-chosen words that hearken all the way back to verse 25 because Paul knew that there was only one place on the whole planet without shame. The gospel. There is no other place in the world without shame. You will be shamed everywhere you go, but there. Why? I want you to listen to these words, and I want you to breathe them in as the very breath that you breathe. It's so hard when you get to a point like this to try to make it something that I can't do. I can't do that for you. I can't do it for me. So we're just going to read it. Here's why Paul says it's the safest place on the planet. Here's why Paul says the gospel is the only place without shame. It's the only safe place. This is why. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. You know what that means? That means when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are watching Jesus live life for you. You're not just watching a demonstration of God and his powers. You are watching the one who takes your place and lives the shameless life that you and I cannot and will never live. So guess what? There is no shame in a relationship with God because Jesus rested in God, relied on him, rejoiced in him, loved him and obeyed him, served him and worshiped him with his whole heart all the time for you. So there is no shame. You are enough. In relating to others, the way he handles people, the way he handles the most difficult, annoying people, the people we want to run from, the people we want to 
punch in the mouth of people we don't want to deal with and how he loves the good and how he loves the ugly and how he loves the most difficult. He serves them. He's patient with them. He flourishes them. He causes them to come back to life again. He treats everyone with care and humility and no self-interest and self-absorption. He didn't ever enter into a discussion or a room and think, well, I wonder what this person thinks of me. Oh, I bet they were just disappointed. He never thought about himself. He never thought about what he thought of himself. He never thought about what other people thought of him. For you, there's no shame. Jesus is enough. He handled money. He handled sex. He handled work. He handled life. He handled difficult situations. He handled places. He handled stress. He handled everything perfectly for you. There is no shame. He's enough. In Christ, in Jesus, there is no shame. You're not a piece of... You're the righteousness of Christ. Here's the catch, though. We can't do this alone. That's the point of chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone. That means it's you, you and I are not made to do this alone. So if we weren't made to do it alone before sin, we're certainly not made to do it alone under shame. And so we need each other. Do you know that the Bible in the Old Testament... Actually, God commanded what were called cities of refuge for shamed people. You know who told me about this? Shaner. You know why? Because he accidentally killed someone. And these cities of refuge were for people that accidentally killed someone. And all the shamed people would go to these cities of refuge to find help and healing because God cared about their shame. And they needed each other. It was a band of the broken. It was the stressed of the shamed. Earlier this week, I had one of the, I don't know, I can say a lot of things. If I really wanted to sound good, I'd say I was without sleep, I wasn't eating well, um, my blood sugar level was down, and I overworked. That's if I want to look good. But if I want to tell you the truth, I just had one of those days that was building. And I'm on the phone with my wife, and I mean, I'm not in a good place. Shame is a good way to describe what was going on. And I start recounting all my disappointments and all my discouragements and why can't I do this and why can't I do that and why can't I change this and why can't I change that and why can't I love you better? Why can't I love my kids better? And she says, You're a sinner, honey. And it was like, oh, honey, I'm a sinner. A city of refuge. 
So here's the deal. We, when we go to this place, this place without shame, you become a refuge for others with shame. How about we as a church be a city of refuge for Waco? That we hold up for Waco and we hold up and you hold up in your marriage and you hold up to your kids and you hold up at the workplace and you hold up at the gym and you hold up at the book place and you hold up wherever God has you. There is only one place in all the planet without shame and it's in the gospel. And you embody that and I embody that in this culture for the sake of Waco. What if, what if all that was said of Redeemer was, golly, man, that is such a safe place. I'd say, you can take me now, Lord. You can take me.